If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 3. John 3, and we have the daunting task of covering uh, verses 1 through 21. Uh, we're not going to slow down too much. I think we could, um, but I think as we have seen with John, it is very much meditative literature. If we slow down too much, we're going to be repeating ourselves continually for a long, long time. So we will be in John 3, verses 1 through 21. And as we enter into John 3, we're actually in the midst of a section in John that includes all of chapters 2, 3, and 4. Maybe you remember that. It highlights this theme of, of the newness that Jesus was bringing through his life and his ministry. You remember he made new wine at the wedding in Cana. You remember last week that he spoke about a new temple after he had cleansed the temple there in Jerusalem. And here in chapter 3, we're introduced to the reality of the new birth or a birth from above. Now, if you've been around the church for even a short period of time, then you've at least heard the idea of being born again. Uh, in fact, it's how some people define themselves. They say, not just I'm a Christian, I am a born again Christian. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be born again? What is the new birth that Jesus is talking about? Here in chapter 3, we meet a man named Nicodemus, and we're invited into a private conversation that he and Jesus had. Have you ever eavesdropped on a conversation before? I know you have. We all have, maybe in a restaurant or in some other public space, and you know you're not supposed to be listening to someone else's conversation, but you just can't help it. Well, you don't need to feel bad or guilty here because John is welcoming us in to this astounding conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. Just think about that. We get to hear a private conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. And as we listen to the way that they interact, we begin to find the truth of the last two verses of the previous chapter. John tells us this in John 2, 24 to 25, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all People. And he did no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then we read in chapter 3, verse 1, now there was a man, a man that Jesus knew. Jesus knew Nicodemus. He knew him through and through. And in knowing Nicodemus, he didn't speak about being born again to him randomly. But because he knew who Nicodemus was, he knew that this was the specific instruction that this man needed. And if Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus, he knows what's in each of us. And in fact, there's a little bit of Nicodemus in all of us. And this conversation settles then into our own hearts. And we hear the voice of Jesus through the scriptures say not only to Nicodemus, but also to us this. Humbly confess that unless you are born again, you will never believe in Jesus or walk in his light. That's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, and it's what he's saying to our hearts this afternoon. Humbly confess, confess what? That unless you are born again, you will never believe in Jesus or walk in his light. Humbly confess that unless you are born again, you will never believe in Jesus or walk in his light. These verses help us to see that if we come to Jesus with some sense of pride or with the assumption that we can kind of figure him out on, out on our own, then we will never receive him. And we will remain in the darkness of our arrogance and our sin. But if we will humble ourselves 
if we will humble ourselves all the way to becoming like a helpless infant, then we will find in Jesus all that our souls are searching for. And this is not only true for our own souls, but as we talk to others about the truth of the gospel, we must have the boldness that Christ displays here. A boldness that says to people, lovingly but truthfully, whoever you think you are, you have to be born again, or you will never believe in Jesus, and you will never walk in his light. Let's read John 3, 1 through 21, but before that, just a quick note, uh, which is the fact that we don't actually know as we read through this where the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus ends and where the commentary of John, the writer of the gospel, begins. Now, maybe you have a red-letter Bible and you say, well, it's read all the way through verse 21 for me. (laughs) But, of course, the original Greek wasn't written in different colors. Uh, In fact, it seems possible that Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus could have ended at verse 15. And there John seamlessly moves into commentary about what that conversation meant from verses 16 to 21. That's possible. It could be that the conversation goes all the way through 21. In the end, really, it's not all that vital. The message is the same, whoever said it. Which is a reminder, actually, of the truth of the inspiration of all of Scripture. I don't know if you've heard this, but I've heard some people speak about being what they call red-letter Christians, which means that whether consciously or or subconsciously, they see some unique inspiration in the words of Jesus. We could fall into that trap fairly easily. Uh, Of course, we can pay particular attention to what Jesus says in the gospel, but we should beware of thinking that there are certain words of Scripture that are more important or more inspired than others. God has given us his complete word, and it is all profitable for us, no matter who is the person that's talking in a particular passage. It's all breathed out by him. And so with that in mind, let's hear the word of the Lord in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, And the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he, he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may, that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Humbly confess that unless you are born again, you will never believe in Jesus or walk in his ways. In these first two verses, we learn a good deal about Nicodemus. And what we learn helps us understand why Jesus says what he says in this conversation. So let's ask and answer this question first. Who was Nicodemus? Who was Nicodemus? And in asking that question, we're also asking what parts of Nicodemus are in me and in the people that I encounter as I go through life. Who was Nicodemus? First, we find that he was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. Now, we came across these two identities back in John chapter 1, verse 19 and following, where we met that delegation, remember, that had been sent to John. We said that the Pharisees were a group within Judaism who held strictly to the Old Testament law, but, but who were also a bit inventive uh, with how they sought to apply it to modern day concerns. And this reference here to a ruler of the Jews probably meant that Nicodemus was a part of the Sanhedrin, which were a group of rabbis in various cities and, and territories who had judicial authority. So long story short, Nicodemus was a member of the elite Jewish leaders. That's who he was. He may even have been in that very group that sent priests and Levites to investigate John the Baptist. Uh, and if that were the case, we might wonder if he heard the report that was brought back regarding John, and maybe he was a little bit more intrigued than others about what was happening in Galilee. He could also have been a part of the Jews in chapter 2, verse 19, who were asking Jesus what gave him the authority to cleanse the temple. But even if he wasn't a part of, of either of those groups, he represents to us the elite rulers of Judaism in Jesus' day. And more broadly, he represents those who, for better or for worse, come to Jesus with some kind of spiritual credential that they're holding on to. Some sort of idea that, that they have a little bit of clout, especially in the spiritual realm. That could be true today. It could be related to the family that, that you're born into or the learning that you've received, or some other external factor that you feel like, oh, I'm part of the religious elite, as it were. And related to this, we later find out about Nicodemus in verse 10, that second, he was the, the teacher of Israel. He was the teacher of Israel. There's a definite article there, the, the teacher of Israel. And there seems to be some indication that in, in this title that Nicodemus was a uniquely gifted teacher, that he was, approved, he was an approved and established rabbi. He had degrees on his walls. He was sought after as a professor of the Jewish faith. And this, combined with his role as a leader in Israel, inevitably creates the soil for pride to grow. We may get a hint of that pride in the fact that Nicodemus comes to Jesus not asking, who are you? But saying, we know who you are. 
We, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the rabbis of Israel, the, the ones who have been taught all these things, we got you figured out, Jesus. Of course, maybe we're being a little bit harsh on Nicodemus because it does seem that he's a little bit different from his fellow Jewish leaders. So thirdly, we could say that John helps us see that he, that he was cautiously curious about Jesus. Who was Nicodemus? He was someone who was cautiously curious about Jesus. This cautious curiosity seems to have been the attitude of the Jewish leaders up till this point in John's gospel. They're asking questions of John. They're asking questions of Jesus. They're trying to discern who they are and what God might be doing in their particular day, though none of them go as far as Nicodemus does to actually visit Jesus. We see Nicodemus's curiosity in that visit and also what he says in verse 2 of John chapter 3. Look at that again. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he begins by addressing Jesus as rabbi, as teacher, which is a powerful thing for him to say, given his status as a, as a great teacher in Israel who had probably gone through all the things that, that established him as a, as a rabbi, unlike Jesus. But it's also a curious thing to say. I think if we look back at the seven titles that are given to Jesus in chapter one, we could say that the title rabbi, it may be the weakest of them, if you think about it. Uh, yes, Jesus was a great teacher, but if that's as far as Nicodemus is going to get, then he's going to fall very far short. And so too for each of us, if that's all the farther we get, Jesus was a good teacher. I won't quote C.S. Lewis to you yet again, uh, but we're reminded that, that Jesus presented himself as much more than a great teacher. And if that's all that we want him to be, then we in fact haven't listened to him at all. Of course, maybe he goes a bit further in the fact that, that he recognizes that Jesus is a teacher from God, that there's a divine authority on Jesus. I don't think this is Nicodemus acknowledging Jesus' heavenly origins, but it's, it's him seeing in Jesus the character of the prophets like Moses or Jeremiah or Isaiah, men who spoke clearly for God. However, the focus here is not on Jesus' words. What's it on? It's on his signs, plural. We read about the turning of the water into wine, but chapter but 2.23 indicates that Jesus had done other signs, and and John simply didn't record all of them. And Nicodemus was ready to admit that whatever these signs were, they were impossible apart from the power of God. So here's what we've got. Nicodemus is obviously very curious about who Jesus is. He's, he's open to just who this man might be. But he's also cautious. Did you notice when Nicodemus showed up? He came at night. And that's no accident that John has that detail in there. John, when he talks about people coming, doing things at night, it's usually to reinforce some deeper darkness that's going on. It could, be, it could refer to Nicodemus' blindness to, to everything that Jesus was, or it could be his desire to come secretly to Jesus, away from the spying eyes of his fellow Jewish leaders. This is where we begin to see that there's a, a little bit of Nicodemus in all of us. We might be curious about Jesus, but we're also a little cautious, at least at the very beginning. We're not ready to throw out all of our own power or all of our own cloud or all of our own self-ascribed worth. We, we come to Jesus and, and we bring our degrees with us. We bring all of our titles with us. We bring all of our accolades that, that seem to 
show that we're worthy of coming to Jesus or that we might be able to figure him out. And we come at night. We come to Jesus a little bit uncertain, a little cautious, not ready to really believe in this guy just yet. And if that's you, well, then I think Jesus welcomes you into conversation. It's not going to be a simple conversation, mind you. He's, he's going to ask some hard questions, and he's even going to ask for some concrete action. But Jesus can handle our cautious curiosity. He can handle our skepticism. He can handle it in your family and your friends and your neighbors as well. And so we should be like Jesus. We should welcome people that cautiously come to Jesus, that think they have Jesus figured out. We should welcome them into an open and transparent conversation. And when they say, well, I know who Jesus is, we don't need to be surprised. We don't need to be surprised that they actually have really incomplete answers about who Jesus is. Rather, we need to press in on them and see what's going on in their hearts, just like Jesus does here. Like us, many people, like us and many people that we meet, Nicodemus actually comes to Jesus and he doesn't really ask him a question. It's not a question in verse 2. He's like that guy in high school or in college who would raise their hand uh, like they had a question, and then they just talk for a while, but never really ask a question, you know? You remember those guys? They kind of wanted to share their observations in the form of a question that actually wasn't a question. And yet, Nicodemus is also dancing around a question that he doesn't state directly. It's the question that John is asking throughout his whole gospel. Who are you, Jesus? Nicodemus doesn't want to ask that question. He wants to say, well, I know who you are, I think. I think I know who you are. And Jesus, who knows all people, gets at the core of what Nicodemus is trying to discover. And he makes it clear, not only who he is, but also just what Nicodemus needs to do in response to who he is. So, if we all have a little bit of Nicodemus in us, then the next question, after understanding who he is, the next question that surfaces in this passage is, what must every Nicodemus do? What must every Nicodemus do? And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time, and I'll give you three answers that I think are in this passage. What must every Nicodemus do? The first thing that Jesus says to Nicodemus is, you must be born again. Verses three through eight, Jesus makes it clear that every Nicodemus must be born again. As we said, Nicodemus has just said some fairly positive things about Jesus. And we might expect Jesus to say, you know, Nicodemus, you're getting there. Let me just tell you a little bit more about who I am so that you can finally solve this puzzle. But what Jesus actually does is undercut the assurance that Nicodemus has that he can observe Jesus or talk to him and come to some sort of proper conclusion on his own about just who Jesus is. Nicodemus assumes that he can see and he can enter God's kingdom because of who he is. In fact, Nicodemus is probably shocked at the thought that Jesus says there's anything that he needs to do to be welcomed into God's kingdom, into eternal life, into salvation that the Messiah is bringing. Wasn't who Nicodemus was already enough? I'm sure he thought that. But Jesus wants this well-respected, highly educated man to see that he actually has to become like an infant before he can ever become a son of God. And he wants us to see that if Nicodemus needs to be born again, Nicodemus needs to be born again, then so does everybody. Let's say a little bit more about what it means to be born again. First, it's a, it's a spiritual birth. 
to be born again, it is a spiritual birth, meaning it's not a physical birth, which is where Nicodemus goes. Now, it's hard to imagine that Nicodemus, the question that he asks there in verse 4, that that's actually genuine, that, that he thinks Jesus is telling me I have to be born again in some physical sense. I don't think that's what he thought. But his mind, we realize, is so occupied with the physical realm and with earthly status that he has no category for a kind of birth other than a physical one. Does that make sense? Because I think that's the world that we live in. It's a world that on the surface has no category for the spiritual. If I can't see it, it doesn't matter. And it's not really important. It's of no consequence. But of course, what we see with our eyes, our earthly eyes, is not nearly as important and, and consequential as what we can't see with them. And Jesus says that if we want to see God's kingdom, if we want to see his salvation, then we must be born in a way that is not observable with our physical eyes. In verse 5, he says that this spiritual birth, this being born again or being born from above, is a birth of water and spirit. Now, I don't know how many pages D.A. Carson covered about debates about what that phrase actually means, but it seems most likely that Jesus is helping the teacher of Israel to understand Ezekiel. <laughs> Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. This is what the prophet wrote, very parallel to our assurance of forgiveness in this new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be very careful to obey my rules. So what does it mean to be born again, to be born of the water and the spirit? It's to be cleansed by Jesus and then to be given a new heart and a new spirit that can and wants to walk in his ways. To be born from above is the fulfillment of the new covenant. And it's, not, it's no accident that following the, the chapter of Ezekiel, chapter 36, the next chapter is Ezekiel 37. And what's Ezekiel 37 describe? It's the valley of dry bones that is given new life. Because this is the miracle of being born from above. It's that we who were dead in our sins are made alive through the washing and the regeneration of the Spirit. In verse 6, Jesus summarizes these, these thoughts by helping Nicodemus and us see that there is physical birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But there's another kind of birth completely, and only Spirit can give birth, birth to Spirit. So a, a second thing that we might say about this birth from above that that overlaps with the fact that it's a supernatural birth is that it is that it is a spiritual birth is that it is a supernatural birth it's supernatural and what i want to emphasize here is that this birth is not something that we can manufacture you can't buy it you can't will it you can't force it you can't finagle it remember john 1 12 through 13 those who receive jesus who believe who are given the right to become children of god are born how not of blood not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. Jesus says that we must be born from above, and if that's going to happen, we have to be born by God's will, not our own. 
And the will of God, says Jesus, is like the wind. Spirit and wind, same word, which is an interesting thing to to note in this passage, but Jesus says that the will of God is like the wind. Now, here in our city, we've just had a, a pretty visceral experience with wind, haven't we? We saw the trees in our yard swaying, and then we saw some of them snapped and even uprooted. You know, the power of the wind. I don't think that's necessarily what Jesus is talking about here. Rather, we could ask this question, where did that wind come from? If you could follow that wind like you might follow a river, would you find some sort of source? Is there a giant fan in the sky that is causing all of this amazing wind? No, of course. The the wind shows up, and while we can sort of track it, there's a sense in which we we don't really know where it comes from, and we don't know where it's going. And Jesus says that's how the Spirit works. From our perspective, we can't pin it down. We can't pin down just exactly how the Spirit works. But oh, have we tried. (laughs) The American church, I think, and by extension the church throughout the world, is actually still suffering under some of the practices of something like the Second Great Awakening, wherein people thought they could harness the, the Spirit's movement through human will. They came up with all these ways to know how to get the Spirit to do exactly what he needed to do. And as individuals, we can also imagine that we have something to do with when and where and how the Spirit moves. Now, yes, we can and we must walk in holiness and in faithfulness, which puts us, as it were, in the path of the wind of the Spirit. But it's, it's God's wind-like will that ultimately determines where he moves. Think about that as a church. We've got to be faithful as a church. But God is the one who determines how we grow, when we grow, where we grow, what he wants to do with us. And of course here the the focus is on the new birth. That's a broader principle about the movement of the Spirit. But here it's on the new birth and the fact that God alone brings the new birth to whoever he wants to. There is nothing in Nicodemus that could have caused him to be born from above. None of his accolades made it more possible for him to be born from above. And there is nothing in any of us that can do the same. That may sound a little bit difficult or unfair to our ears, but it's actually really glorious and comforting. What if we all had to be Nicodemus in order to get into the kingdom? We had to be born to the right parents. We had to get the right education. We had to make the right career moves and so on. But if the new birth is all of grace and it's all of the will of God, then anyone can be saved. And the Spirit, while untraceable, is not haphazard. He is always moving. He's always inviting those who will admit their need to come and to be born again. He meets us even when we are just a little cautiously curious. He breathes life into those actually that we least expect. What a mystery God's will is. But what a wonder of his grace is found if we stop thinking about it in purely earthly terms and we allow him to take us into the heavenlies to see the wonders of his grace and his mercy to anyone who will come to him. It means that anyone can be saved. Anyone can see God's kingdom. It means that every person we talk to, every single person has the hope of being born again of experiencing this spiritual, supernatural birth. You don't have to be like Nicodemus and have a whole bunch of 
letters by, behind your name or have a whole bunch of a long spiritual history. You can be anyone and the Spirit of God can awaken you and cause you to be born again. The new birth that God gives us then allows us to respond as we need to. There's other things that Jesus calls Nicodemus to do, but I think that they all seem to only be possible if we are born again. Because dead people can't do anything, but those who are born again can respond to the gospel call. And so we find in verses 9 through 18 that we not only need to be born again, but Jesus says to us, you must believe in the Son. You must believe in the Son. Remember, John's emphasis on belief is so clear. Nicodemus asks a good and a genuine question in verse 9. He says, how how can these things be? Which is why we might be surprised at Jesus' apparent rebuke of him in verses 10 through 13. But I think at least part of what's happening here is Jesus is saying, this is nothing new. You're a student of the Old Testament scriptures, and you're a teacher of them. This should all be really familiar to you. Jesus even takes up the pronoun we as Nicodemus has done. Did you notice that? Verse 11, Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. I think, I think there's a little rebuke of, of Nicodemus there. Uh, we know these things. He shows, the him, he shows Nicodemus that his thinking has become so grounded in earthly thinking that he cannot understand even the most basic of heavenly thoughts. But Jesus did not come from earth to let us keep thinking earthly thoughts. What does he say? He says he descended from heaven so that he could tell us heavenly things that we wouldn't otherwise know. He's come to reveal supernatural things to us. Again, not to belabor the point, but we see the danger of being so aware of what we see and so persuaded by it that we fail to recognize the much more real and consequential nature of things that we do not see. In your objections to the Christian message, are you thinking about predominantly earthly things? And in doing so, have you taken the time to ask the Spirit of God to help you to see the unseen? As we talk to others about the gospel, have we come to rely on arguments that center primarily on what we and they can see with our physical eyes? Or are we seeking to continually say to people, you gotta be born again, or you'll never believe? No one can be argued into the kingdom with purely factual evidence about the things that they see. These kinds of proofs, they're helpful, but they can only serve to tear down certain barriers. In the end, it is the eyes of our hearts and our souls that have to be opened if we or our friends are ever going to believe. And belief is what Jesus is driving toward, always driving towards belief, towards faith. In verse 14, he again goes to the Old Testament to teach the teacher of Israel what the Old Testament really means. In Numbers 21, the Lord sent fiery serpents amongst the complaining Israelites. And then in Numbers 21, 8 to 9, we read this. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. How amazing. Right here, so early in Jesus' ministry, he is fully aware of his coming sacrificial death. And he tells Nicodemus that that bronze serpent 
lifted up on a pole, spoke about a deeper reality. It pointed to the fact that Jesus would be lifted up to die and that all who would look to and believe in his sacrificial death would be saved. That he descended to earth so that he might be lifted up to die. Now, earthly thinking, earthly thinking would say that a man lifted up on a cross was cursed. But heavenly thinking said that a man lifted up on a cross in fact removed the curse of sin and brought eternal blessing. In fact, verses 16 to 18, uh, verses 16 through 18 say that the whole reason that God sent Jesus into the world was for this purpose of saving. Remember that verse 16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, begins with a four. It's part of an argument. Why did God, why, would, why, why did Jesus come? It's for this purpose. It's, it's for a, a reason. God loved the world and he showed his love for the sinful, fallen world in a very specific way. How? By sending his only son into the world so that everyone who would look to him, everyone who would believe in him would have eternal life, would be saved and see God's kingdom and enter into it. Jesus was, was not sent to condemn the world, verse 17. He was not sent to judge the world in this moment, but to save it. The condemnation we face, John goes on and says, it, we face comes when we don't believe in the Son. But the, one, the ones who believe are not condemned. They are saved. Just think what a shock this is to Nicodemus, this member of the religious elite, to hear that God loved the world. His love is not centered on a specific ethnic group or a certain class of people or the religious elite. It's not given only to those who have the right credentials. God loves the world. And because of his love, he sent his son to save everyone who would believe, regardless of any inherent status that they may have or be clinging to. It's a reminder that the gospel call is one that we should extend to everyone. We can fall into an ugly trap. It's the ugly trap of thinking that we can discern just who it is that's going to see Jesus and believe in him. Because Nicodemus, that's who I'd put my money on probably. But it's often the ones that we expect to come to the marriage feast that refuse the invitation. And instead we're called to go to the dark corners of the world we're called to compel people to believe, the people that we don't expect to believe because the wind of the Spirit blows wherever it wants. And it's often the unlikely in our eyes who are the most likely to trust in Christ. Think about what Paul says to the, to the church, if I'm remembering right, in Corinthians. He kind of says, look around. Not a lot of wise, not a lot of noble." Not a lot of celebrities amongst you because God's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the wise. On our own, we're not going to look to the sun. And we will die condemned in and by our sin. So we have to be born again. And if we are born again, then we can believe in the sun. Verses 19 through 21 give us one more thing that we Nicodemuses must do. And it's you must come to the light. You must come to the light. 
It is no accident that this conversation began with Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night and that it ends speaking about the fact that we human beings naturally love darkness. No accident. Because the darkness hides us. I might have the time wrong, but Andrea's dad used to tell her, nothing good happens after midnight. I had 11 o'clock, so nothing good happens after midnight, which is something that parents have been telling teenagers for centuries in one form or another, right? There's something about night that makes us think that we can get away with things, right? Even Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 5, those who get drunk, get drunk when? At night. That's when you get drunk. You don't get drunk in the middle of the day because in the light of the day, we feel like we can't hide our sinful behavior. Well, Jesus is the light of the world, and we who are born in sin, we do not want to get near him. Why? Because the light is too bright. It's going to expose all the darkness in us. It's going to expose all of our sin. I don't want to go close to Jesus, so I hate the light. We all naturally hate the light because it's going to make us feel bad. It's going to reveal all of our inability. It's going to take Nicodemus, who thought he had it all together, and if he gets too close to Jesus, the light of the world, he's going to realize he doesn't have it all together. It's going to take your friends who think that they've got life figured out, and when you start to shine the light of the gospel, they're going to say, well, I don't want to hear that because that makes me feel like I'm condemned. And we say, well, if you don't believe, you are. It takes the light of Jesus, and it shines us on our own, on our own hearts, and it helps us see that we don't have it all together like we thought we did. But if we're born again, something changes. And instead of running away from the light, we actually try to get closer to it. We want our sinfulness to be exposed because we want to be more like Jesus. If you've ever brought your sin into the light, have you ever done that? Brought your sin into the light? It's not easy to speak about our sin to God or to another person so hard. But the Christian has been changed by God's Spirit so that they want to come closer and closer to the light of Jesus. We want to confess our sin, the sin that we're hiding, because we know the healing that the light and the truth of Jesus can bring. So if you're a Christian today and you've found yourself hiding in the darkness of your own sin, know this, that that's not what God intended for you. Instead, he invites you as you behold the light of Jesus in the scriptures, to come closer and closer to the light through confession, through prayer, through, confe- through confession in prayer, and through confession to brothers and sisters in Christ. Just think about that first light that you turn on in the morning. Nobody wants to turn that light on. It's painful. It hurts. But you know what? It's a lot better to walk around in the light than to stumble through the darkness. And how long does it hurt your eyes? Just for a moment. When we step into the light, when we live our lives in the light before one another and before God, we don't stumble. We walk closer and closer and we get closer and closer to who Christ is and his light transforms us more and more. Jesus in night invites Nicodemus and all of us to not hide in the night, but to come to Christ and allow his light to change us. You know, I wonder too if there's not an invitation here to publicly declare faith in Jesus. That, that maybe here there's a, 
an invitation towards the act of baptism, whereby we publicly say, I am a follower of Jesus. I'm born again. I believe and I want to walk in the light. I'm not like Nicodemus who's secretly coming to Jesus. I don't want people to know that I'm associated with him. No, I will stand forth and say that this is who I am. Maybe God's working in your heart about that step of obedience. Or it could simply be that we need to live with more obedience for Jesus each day, of wearing our identity as a child of God a bit more on our sleeve, as it were. In all these ways, God's word tells us you must come to and walk in the light. Well, we've asked what must every Nicodemus do, and we've said you must be born again, you must believe in the Son, and you must come to the light. But you know what I'd say? I think as we understand these things a little bit more, there's a sense in which there's a better question. And this might be the better question. What must God do for every Nicodemus? Not what must every Nicodemus do, but what must God do for every Nicodemus? Because God is the one who causes the new birth. God is the one who supplies our faith. God is the one who draws us into his marvelous light. And here, of course, we approach the mystery of divine sovereignty and the will of men and women. And oh my, look at the time. Uh, (laughs) There's questions here we obviously don't have time for. But what we can say is this. In the light of the way that salvation is presented as an act of God from beginning to end, this passage calls us, at the very least, to humility. It calls us to humbly confess that unless we're born again, we will never believe in Jesus. And we will never walk in his light. And in that, it calls us to give all glory to God for our salvation and to trust him alone for the salvation of every person in this world. And we can trust him. Why? Because he loved the world in this way. That he sent his only son that whoever believes in him Whoever looks to Jesus on the cross dying for the sins of the world will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Would you join me in a moment of silence as we reflect on God's word, and then I will pray. Father, we thank you for the love of Jesus. We thank you for your love for us that caused you to send him to save our souls, to cause us to be born again, to let us believe in Christ and to come to the light. Lord, may we be those that that walk in the light, that are always believing in you, that are giving you praise always because you alone are the one that has saved us and help us to publicly declare the beauty of who you are, to call people, Lord, not just to to look at what they can see, but to think about the fact that they need to be born from above, that there is something deeper in their lives that they haven't even seen yet, and that they can be transformed by the good news of Jesus. ask all this in his name. Amen.